um, competing with these large pharma companies that have huge amounts of resources and data or like AI companies that have like a lot of expertise on the AI side. How do you see yourself fitting the picture alongside those? I wouldn't say we're competing with them. So I would say they are like potential collaborator or, you know, potential people who could complement them. I to reach the people in the industry, I feel they're more open to help you out. But usually it's changes a little bit. I think it's very difficult. So a startup company, it's, it's a very, very difficult process. So, but it's also very rewarding. Uh, maybe we need a new regulatory body for the innovation because FDA is very focused on safety. How about innovation? I mean, at the end of it, you need to have a product of innovation, right? So innovation would lead to something, right? It is improved therapeutics or improved diagnostic or improved delivery, right? So it's gonna be the end product of the regulation, I mean, the innovation, um, you know, would lead to, uh, uh, you know, it's, it needs to be proved basically based on both safety and also efficacy, like if it's helping or not. Then you're in love with your problem that you actually found a company based on that, which is not traditional. Like, I think you did a bunch of internship on pharma industry, on Merck and others. Yeah. And then you see, okay, I can found a company, Revive Met, uh, I think, uh, founded in 2018. So that's, that's, I think it's really interesting to point it out. So how was your thought on that time? Yeah, it was a process. It was not like one day I woke up and said, hey, I want to start a company. <laughs> it was definitely nothing like that. Um, so, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, when I came to the US and started my PhD, I definitely want to stay in academic path. So that was my first initial plan. And, Soon after, I realized it's not really fit with my interests. Not, not this fan of writing. First of all, I'm super yeah. excited for today. Um, first, because of the topic we want to cover. Uh, I think for myself or anyone want to educate uh, in computation, computational biology, drug delivery, or basically application of the AI. Today is a very interesting discussion. And also because of our star guest, Leila John, uh, has a remarkable journey. So we are delighted to have you here. Um, just setting the stage, I give a brief introduction about Leila. Obviously, she was born and raised in Iran. She went to medical school, but she left uh, because uh, she missed math. And then she started her journey in <clears throat> biotechnology in the University of Tehran. Um, between her undergrad and master, she went to Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. If you know, it's one of the most prestigious research institute and she worked in developing algorithm and then she came back uh, to Iran and finished her master. I think one of the most uh, pivotal moments in her academic journey when she came to US and started her PhD in Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. And in 2016, um, she published a paper in Nature magazine that we talk more about it. And she actually found a company based on that. Um, she's very famous. She's one of the top leaders in that field. 
And but one of the things that I think our audience should check is a TED talk that she gave on 2019. Uh, she, it already gave, uh, gets more than two million views on the TED website. Um, so happy to have you here, Leila John. Um, just for first question, I was super curious about your path to MIT. And I think it's not very traditional when you graduate from University of Tehran and you straightforward go to the MIT. So give us a kind of uh, high level, what happened? What's the backstory about that? And the, my second part question is about your experience at MIT. I think you did a profile with MIT and this is your exact quote. Sometimes you get somewhere and you like it. Oh, it's okay. That's it. It lose its sparkle, but MIT has never in that way. It's never get old. So as an MIT alum, what was the significant about MIT? So just two part um, question. Thank you so much. So hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. And also thanks for the kind introduction. I'm really honored to be here uh, and tell you guys a little bit more, uh, more about my journey. Um, yeah, so I'm just going to start from basically Iran and how I, from University of Tehran to MIT. Um, so I mean, when I was in undergrad, I was just really fascinated by the science and research. So that was my biggest focus was um, you know, at the time, I think when I went to my undergrad, like AI and, you know, computational biology was not a field that was hot at the time. So right now is uh, quite a bit different. But I was very fortunate back in University of Tehran to work with one of our, our statistics teacher who was using actually at the time, like advanced statistical modeling in understanding biological data. And this was back in 2005 and six, like, you know, human genome was just recently sequenced. We were just starting to be able to handle larger scale like data set. And, you know, the computational power at the time we had was so limited. Like sometimes it's funny for me how much RAM I had in my computer. Um, so at the time I was just really fascinated by this subject. So I started doing some research with basically the professor at the University of Tehran, who um, at the time was also the Dean of School of, uh, School of Science in the University of Tehran. So I just really got fascinated by that field of basically intersection of biology and math and computer science. Um, and that basically led me to this, my career path and starting from just doing research, just really focusing, trying, and I was fortunate to publish a couple of papers in my undergrad. Um, one was I was first author and also a couple of other that I was co-authored with some of my colleagues. So I think that really helped to build the foundation to, to the research project and also getting to MIT. And I remember like, I was just really at the time was just mostly fascinated by science. And of course I wanted to continue my education in like an institute that are very focused also in this intersection. Um, I was fortunate also to do some research in Switzerland at ETH University. That was also very helpful to build up on my research career and, and path. And actually, really interesting. So when I was in Iran, I was trying to apply for graduate school. I, I basically find some professors. This is like independent of like, you know, because every university, they have this process of applying for graduate school and like, you know, submitting your application, your, uh, you know, um, letter of statement and basically uh, all, all the other, you know, resume and everything. So what, one thing I did, I was basically looking again on the research of some of the professors. Um, and then I basically just email them and tell, hey, this is what I've done previously. Uh, I really like your research. I, you know, was very interested. And in, um, this is my resume. Do you think even I have a shot to apply for your graduate school program? 
Um, and actually, funny enough, so I remember at the time, I, I really liked the lab I joined to MIT. I really loved the research so that we're doing. Um, and uh, so my PhD advisor, Ernest Frankel, who's, who's currently a faculty at MIT Biological Engineering Department, and he was doing kind of network modeling. So I remember back in Iran, we had a journal club, and I presented some of his work, uh, like, like, you know, during my master's degree. And I was so fascinated with his work. I thought, oh, this is really cool. So I actually write, wrote him an email, and I say, hey, this is what I've done. This is my papers I published. I really like what you're doing. And he even gets a call with me. So I remember at the time he went because, I mean, it wasn't Zoom at the time. I don't remember what, uh, what technology we were using. So we were, like, doing a call with me, and then he was just basically asking me lots of questions of, like, my research. And he was also very, like, kind with me, and they gave me feedback. He was telling me, hey, MIT is very competitive. Apply. But, you know, just don't put all your eggs at the MIT basket either. <laughs> Apply for other graduate schools, too. Um, and... So I basically, I think that really helped me. So I think if any of the audience, I think they're looking for graduate school, I, I do think it will help to reach out to some of the PIs already in the department, but also not just, it shouldn't be so random, like it should be really tailored to their research because that, that really you get the answer. Like if you just randomly email and there's nothing relevant, you don't get people's attention. Um, so that, that really helped. I think the research I built and what I really wanted to do was very aligned uh, with the program I got into MIT and I was very fortunate like even at the time I, I met my my PhD advisor and he was even telling me I was like, hey you don't have to join my lab I know we had a call but you know because we had a semester at MIT to figure out which lab we want to join so we we're just mostly taking classes um, and we did orientations in different labs and to see which lab we want to continue doing our research PhD project um, so I think that was like a first part of basically like how I get to MIT, it was really focused on science and trying to do a good research and finding a good graduate school fit and a lab. Um, and I was again fortunate to join Ernest Lab, Ernest Frankel Lab, and doing research uh, in his lab. And I, I was really interested of the work, so I was just very passionate about the science itself. Um, and I really liked the whole intersection of basically what he was doing, specifically in network biology, network modeling. Um, and also the application in biological setting. Um, I forgot the second question was now move forward to that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the second part is that, so thank you for um, yeah, the you. first part. The second part is that, so as an alum, uh, you mentioned that you have very uh, different and unique experience in MIT. I just wanna know what was that experience? What's specific about MIT that, you know, differentiate mm -hmm. from your viewpoint? I think MIT was a, uh, I mean, it's going to MIT, you know, when I got there, I was also very scared at the, my first semester. I was like, oh my God, I hope there was no mistake. <laughs> and, you know, it's just like, sometimes you, you get to, like, I was like looking up my classmates. I was like, oh, wow, they all went to this really great school. I was also like, you know, worried. I was like, do I even fit there? Do I, like when we were taking like our first semester class, I was like, do like what my background is good enough for compared to rest of my classmates, right? So at the beginning, it's always like, um, I feel like, Lots of people might feel that when you come from Iran to like the US. So it might be like there is a differences. And it, sometimes uh, if you feel maybe even not long. <laughs> um, but one thing I really like about MIT was everyone at school was very passionate again about science and everyone was so down to earth. So that was one of my things I really like about MIT. Everyone was doing really cool science and work and everyone was so down to earth to 
and they were very helpful. So I remember, um, so because I was very interested in AI angles, so I took one of the most advanced machine learning courses at MIT. So I was basically taking it with computer science PhDs. Um, and it was a really tough class, and I didn't have many of the backgrounds that they previously had. So I was really worried about that class, and I wasn't sure, like, should I drop? Because I was taking it as an optional um, class. So I wasn't sure if I should keep the class or I should, like, you know, drop it. Um, but I remember, like, it was very helpful, like, environment. So everyone was so helpful. Like, we were spending a whole week doing, like, a homework in the class, collaborating with every other classmate. And so everyone was very helpful. And they just really want you, um, they really help to uh, basically teach everyone about the science that they were doing. And everyone was very passionate about their work. So that's one thing that was very unique. Um, that was one angle, I think the scientific angle. And the other angle was what I really like about MIT was also the opportunities besides science that I was exposed to. Um, so MIT is, I mean, there are other schools, so I don't think MIT is the only one, but uh, it, it was a very entrepreneur environment at the school. Um, so, I mean, growing up in Iran at, at the time, I mean, now it's a bit different between considering to when I was growing up, there was an, uh, I didn't know too much about the startups. I I didn't know like what my career, like the only option I thought in my career path is to become an academic professor. So coming to graduate school, that's what I thought I'm going to do. Actually, that's what all the letters I wrote in my um uh, you know, to graduate school, I want to stay in academic, I want to become a faculty. And at the time, I didn't even know what other options I could have, because I thought what I do is very pure science. That, that's it. Like, basically, that's the other only option existing. But I felt MIT, like, there was so many other opportunities that I could explore. Um, There was, like, there was so many different groups at school, like, um, different committees and uh, everything you you want to do, you could explore. Like I even explored to become like a management consultant, and there were so many opportunities I meant to focus on. Like during grad school, like so many different clubs and everything, they were doing different work, and um, there were the opportunities outside of basically just academic paths was really like good, and there were areas that we could basically explore. Uh, it wasn't just like there was talks, but you could actually do actions towards like different factors that you like. And there was always support uh, for students to do that. Um, so there was every time like you want something, there was some sort of a support at university. Like you want to have a career consulting, like um, you want to do a writing workshop, like improve your writing. There was everything was so available. And I think that's made it so unique. I was just really blown out by all the opportunities I had. Um, and I was like, wow, I could do all these things. <laughs> And everything, like, you know, I don't need to pay for this thing. So I could basically take any classes. So for me, it was really eye-opening. I was like, I could take any classes I wanted at MIT, which I ended up taking lots of classes. <laughs> I took, like, computer science classes. I could, like, MIT business school classes. I was like, wow, I could take everything I want, basically. And I was I was really blown out with this availability of, as a student, how much support we had. And I think that was one of the biggest things I really like about MIT, except the science, basically. Awesome. Machine Jana Fazan. Go ahead. I do have a question, Leila. Not everybody is academically or like lucky to get into MIT, but we have MOOCs now, massive open online courses. 
I was wondering what courses that you took at MIT helped you the mm. most with the path that you've taken that now like others who are not at MIT, at least like now with all the education and uh, yeah. uh, knowledge available online, they can they can do that outside. Uh, like it's especially there are a lot of PhD students that I hear that they want to either go into industry or start their yeah. own startup. What do you recommend to them to take outside their academic courses? This is a really good question because um actually like I feel like the whole landscape of education has changed so much in this past ten years. Like at the time, like none of these online courses was available. And the interesting part is that I actually had to take online courses after I graduated because when I was in graduate school, so as I mentioned, I took like the most advanced machine learning course at MIT, and at the time there was zero thing on neural network models. So everything was in traditional machine learning. I remember so much support vector machines, like everything, like barely a touch base on neural networks. So, um, and I took this class, I think back in 2011. So it was really, you know, really not an AI hot topic at the time. So even for myself, like the, the science changes so much. Every year, like, you, you know, we don't learn so many things in the school. So I think the continuously learning the different topics is, is like, it's not just for, you know, it, it has to continue even after school. So I actually took like, I remember after I graduated, I took lots of the, I like Coursera. So I actually got a Coursera subscription for the whole company. And I was telling people, I said, hey, you guys, you should take, I recommend these are the really good classes of, you know, Android classes, like neural network models. And and right now I was very fortunate. Like I feel like the whole like a field, especially in computer science, there are so many online classes available and sometimes really good classes, you could online watch them. So we do a lot of neural network modeling in my company. And I know one of the most famous professors at Stanford, I think Jor Leskovic, he, he put all his online classes available with the slide deck, you could watch them on YouTube. I actually sent that course class to everyone who joined my company. I was like, hey, you guys need to watch these classes <laughs> before to like, you know, because I think this is a really good topic. You guys will learn a lot. Um, I mean, there's so much available. I think there are even blogs on CS, like the number of available academic courses it's really depend on everyone's basically interest and the area of our expertise. Uh, but I, I think like learning online classes should be continuous and definitely even after graduation because science changed so rapidly. Yeah. How about some, some like um, you mentioned writing class courses you, you took, you joined clubs for, for example, con management consulting. Like which soft skill focused courses do you think a grad school uh, school student should take um, to prepare themselves for the industry? Um, I feel like soft skills like the one you need to learn by practice. So I don't know if it's like it's a bit hard to just like learn like soft skills. I mean, I've read lots of books on management. So since I started my company, like. That's one of the things I think you don't learn too much in graduate school is the teamwork. Like in graduate school, you learn really well to be independent thinker and problem solver. And that's, I think, what's make a graduate school unique experience. So you learn to solve a problem, but one thing you don't learn is the club, like teamwork, uh, I would say. So it's a little bit hard. Like I read lots of books myself, like about team management, like team management, team productivity, um, but I think at the end of it, it's all about like putting this into practice. So it's, I think like maybe for people who they could do some project-based collaboration. So something is small that I think software skills mostly learned during doing a project with other students or 
uh, I don't have any specific thing in mind, but I don't think it's just like would be just a class. I think it's just something that could be collaboration between people that you could see what, because then, you know, you could do a project. There's going to be always a conflict between uh, the team members. Some people do have different ideas. Some people don't have different ideas. How to hear everyone, um, how to effectively say your idea while also taking other people's idea in mind and like, delivering things in the timely manner and collaborating. So I feel like this is something that's more, it's good to like learn about on books. I, I mostly did books, not, not classes. Um, but I think at the end, you, you need to put it in practice. <laughs> well, that sounds great. So, you know, I have a question about Boston. Boston is always very interesting for me because, you know, it's home to multiple Ivy League schools like Boston University, MIT, Harvard, you know, all these names that really impress you all of them are there so uh, i want to ask about you know it's it's my personal curiosity that okay having all these like uh universities in one city uh you know how can it help you did did you have any chance to collaborate with like students from other universities uh you know how how could this help you in like i, I mean in this special vibe of Boston. Yeah. No, I think that's really unique environment about Boston that have so many academic institute, also industry partners, there's so many pharma there and also hospitals. So I think that lead to a really unique ecosystem to grow collaboration. And it definitely helps. Like we collaborated with lots of um, I mean, like at, I think at MIT, we, I didn't do it, but I think you could even cross register for any cl Harvard classes or some of the Harvard classes. So I we had like a student from Harvard that were taking MIT classes or vice versa. And there were always like some hackathons, some weekend, something that was between the schools that you could participate and people form teams um, to basically leverage like a different, uh, you know, expertise or different departments. I think the other thing was particularly was interesting is the academic hospitals, because for example, like, like at MIT, there was, we don't, we didn't have med school. So that was something like, you know, there was so many hospitals around. So if you want to like, collaborate with hospitals, like uh, getting patient samples or understanding how the, uh, you know, doctors make decisions and how you like improve on that and how you learn about what's the current, you know, stand of the career. So I think I really like the fact that there were so many hospitals and there were almost the academic hospitals um, around. So you could, you could basically connect with people, meet them super easily. So we, I, my, my experience mostly, I've worked with hospitals in the Boston area, and it was very easy to connect with them. The Harvard Medical School, I've attended so many talks there. So there was always, there were like really important talks with like, they bring very famous, you know, professors and the talks are usually open to lots of people. So it doesn't matter if actually you're part of school or not. So there were many talks that they were organized by a specific committee that were interested in like genetic data or um, some sort of like, you know, academic science and those talks were really available for everyone and everyone could participate and, and learn. Back to your path and your journey, Leila John. So I think the most important part of your academic journey is the paper that you published. The title is Revealing Disease Associated Pathway by Network Integration of Untargeted Metabolomic. So just wanted to see as a high level uh, why you go for this category. Um, leveraging metabolomic for the disease that uh, there is no like treatment for it and um, what's the story behind it oh thank you yeah so when I joined my PhD lab at MIT I was 
I, I had no clue what metabolites are. <laughs> so I was very, I, I just love the science. So my PhD was, was doing network biology and I was very fascinated with the network science and how we could use a network modeling approach to, um, you know, to understand biology. And while I was doing my PhD, we basically was like two years in, I was just doing um, basically more combining actually proteomics information with epigenetic data. It's like these are the modification happening in our DNA. So we want to understand how those molecules are connecting to each other in our biological network. And then we basically did some discovery that was like, oh, we identified some novel mechanisms associated with the disease that involve some metabolites. And this was, uh, was some lip lipid molecules were associating with the progression of the disease. So for, for the audience, like metabolites are these small molecules like glucose, cholesterol, you know, all the things you hear in health and diet. <laughs> They're actually very important part of our biology because they actually, in the molecular level, they connect with so many different proteins and they lead to some of the downstream mechanisms that we observe in our biology of a disease progression. So we identified basically that mechanism and we actually asked the collaborator, actually they were in Harvard University, uh, to do the measurements of those metabolites or lipid molecules for us. And I, I mean, they shared the data set with us and then while they shared the data with me, like what I was talking with, and then I shared that with my PhD advice at the time was like, oh, they shared this whole like, really big Excel file with me. It has like, I don't know, like a thousand rows in that Excel file. And they were telling me, Oh, just use the top rows of this Excel file, like the bottom rows. We don't know what those things are. Like, we just don't know what those molecules are. So just don't use them. And I was like, pretty, like, I was like, what does it mean? They share data with me and they tell me not to use the data. Like, why is the case, right? Like, why we cannot use the data? Because um, I was, I was more into data science, you know, mindset. I was like, why does the data is not useful, right? And then I was like talking with them when they tell me, it was like, oh, because we don't know what those molecules exactly are. And there's ambiguity in the data. Uh, and I talked with my PhD advisor about it. I was like, I was like, yeah, they're saying this ambiguity in the data, we cannot use it. And they was saying, oh, maybe we could solve that problem. <laughs> like solve this data ambiguity problem using our some of this network modeling we are doing. And I was like, kind of start thinking about it. I was like, well, this is actually possible. Like we do all this network modeling to connect basically disease molecules with each other. And maybe that that connect how we are connecting those molecules, we could also say reduce the ambiguity in the data as well. So we basically presented ambiguity in the data as a graph, and then we use a graph modeling to resolve those ambiguities. So basically that was really like understanding some biological problem that was existing. And uh, it was like, you know, it was there when no one was like try to solve it using a data-driven approach. And we basically kind of translate that bio problem to a data science problem. So I think that was a key factor for us. It's not just, this is not a biology problem anymore. This is the ambiguity in the data. And there is a lot of methods you could resolve the data ambiguity, right? So I think that was like a key factor for us. And that leads to a nice discovery and we validate that. And because it was like a, you know, we were fortunate to be able to publish in Nature Methods because the methodology really overcoming some of the limitations in the field. So uh, it was really adding value uh, to the field and that's, help with the with the publishing it in a good journal as well when you talk about the ambiguity of the data i just want to double click on that so what's the base of that ambiguity came from because each like each one is different 
what's that could you please tell us what's yeah, MEPT? Sure. um so one of the measure instrument measurements that you use to measure basically lipids or you know glucose or all these blood metabolites or any other metabolites is called mass spectrometry instrument so these are the machines that really high accurate um, accurately measure a mass of a molecule so but usually there are many metabolites with identical mass uh, and I have this really dummy example. If you measure a molecule with a molecular mass of uh, 180 Dalton, that's like a unit of molecular mass, uh, it could be glucose, galactose, fructose. All these three sugar, they have identical mass. So even though you could really highly measure what that mass is, you don't know what that, what that molecule, we don't know if it's glucose or glucose, right? Uh, or galactose. So to resolve those issues, currently people have to do more experimentations. And of course, experimentation is always at the bottom, like it requires more time and costs, right? And right now we could characterize glucose. It's so such a well-studied molecules, you know, you could, but like it's not scalable for tens of thousands of molecules that exist in our body. So we basically represent that as a graph and then leverage some like knowledge-based graph to figure out if that's 180 change in like a blood of a patient, this is glucose, and we could say because glucose is better, how glucose is connected to the dysregulation of other molecules that we also observe in that patient. So we are, that's how we basically reduce the ambiguity in that data. Guys, you have a question. So, you know, uh, when we have like machine learning, deep learning, we need a lot of data especially for like metabolites and molecules that you mentioned, I want to know what are the sources of the data and you need it, you know, you need to update it yeah. because without like data, we cannot yeah. progress in the, like in the field of deep learning AI. Yeah, it's a very good question. Yeah, that's one of the biggest challenges I think of using AI technologies into the biological setting is actually the limitation uh, of the like low availability of the data set. Um, but of course, you know, machine learning, you have supervised learning and you have unsupervised learning. So in the supervised learning, you know what the answer is. So for example, you want to classify, you do image processing, you say, hey, this is a dog, this is a cat. And you need a lot of training samples to say, hey, this, this is a, hey, machine learning, learn this is a dog, learn this is a cat, to predict in a new case. Lots of the work we, we did during my PhD at least, they were all unsupervised learning. But unsupervised learning is that we do not know the labeling of the data, but we're just trying to learn the pattern in the data from what's available. And this is specifically more useful for the bio because if we know that, you know, like if we know already the labels to the data, we already cure all the diseases, right? So there's everything, there's just so much we don't know. So many of the work I did uh, during my PhD were unsupervised learning. But we do use some prior knowledge like a, because we did a lot of network modeling and network optimization. And we've developed a knowledge-based graph for the human biology. Um, and that knowledge-based graph was used as a prior knowledge to find the pattern in the data. And we, for developing those knowledge-based graphs, these are mostly coming from the public domain and the literature. Uh, it's a lot of pain to put them together. Actually, we spend a lot of time in my company to actually you know, because public domain is very noisy, there are different heterogeneous formats. Um, so we have to actually put a lot of efforts to combine public domain data set um, and use that for downstream analysis that we did as well. 
So did you try to build a data set yourself? A pro, I mean, a, uh, like you, you yourself work on the data, try to prepare it. I mean, something coming from your own company, not in a, from like a public yeah. source. Yeah, so we basically collect our own data set from the study. Like we work in a disease area called NASH. It's a liver disease or non-alcoholic hepatitis. So the data from those patients, we collected ourselves. So we collaborate with hospitals. We get patient biospecimens. And then we did the measurement. But again, to still do the inference from that data, we leverage lots of like knowledge-based graph from the literature. So it's a combination of the public and the proprietary data sets uh, that we have to use. And then for, uh, one last follow-up question yeah, is, do you think we have enough data right now in this field or do you still think that a lot of room for data, like data preparation, yeah. like making data set? I mean, can that be a business? Can like making data sets in this field be a startup itself and so on? Generating data is really, really hard. Generating new biological data is very challenging. I think we are not even close anywhere to have enough data for human biology. So we would need more and more and more data. Um, I do think there are lots of the companies and startups right now, some of their key technical advantages that are pitching to VCs are actually their database assets. So I know that companies that will say, oh, we have this number of patients in our proprietary cohort. So definitely a proprietary cohort, it's the value added to any platform. And I do know that you know, AI is big right now. So actually I do know investors, they care more a lot about your data actually than the algorithms because algorithms are, you know, always developing. It's hard to patent it. So that matter a lot. I mean, the other option is actually harmonizing data sets. It's a lot of work <laughs> to actually harmonize data sets. So I know there are companies who actually do that like in the biological setting. So there are companies that say, hey, access our software. We harmonize all these public data sets so you could easily access and query that. I know, I'm not sure like synthetic data, I know in the field of non-biological setting, I think synthetic data generation that companies are doing that. In biology, I mean, I, I, I don't, or I don't know exactly what's a good, like synthetic data generation in biology. I think it's challenging in biology to generate synthetic data because we just don't know what that data is going to look like. We don't know exactly the variance and the bias in the population to be generating a new, you know, synthetic data. But definitely, I think the generative models are helping and people generating, um, generating synthetic data for a specific patient or like predicting the future of that patient based on their past data. But yeah, I think there is really exciting opportunities in, in that aspect for different startups, for sure. Thank you. Thank you. Shijan, you have anything to ask or go for it? No. Um, so then you in love with your problem that you actually found a company based on that, which is not traditional. Like I think you did a bunch of internship on pharma industry, on Merck and others. Yeah. And then you see, okay, I can find a company and revive Met. Uh, I think uh, founded in 2018. So that's that's I think it's really interesting to point it out. So how was your thought on that time? Yeah, it was a process. It was not like one day I woke up and said, hey, I want to start a company. <laughs> it was definitely nothing like that. Um, so, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, when I came to the U.S. and started my PhD, I definitely want to stay in academic path. So that was my first initial plan. And soon after, I realized it's not really fit with my interests. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of writing. <laughs> so I was like, I don't think academic would be a good path for me. So I was like thinking, and I was fortunate to be really, you know, 
having opportunity to explore different angle like what what really uh, you know excites me what gives me energies and what i want to do so the next thing i was like okay if it's not academic then it's industry right <laughs> so i was like it was crazy i was like okay let me just and the good thing is like i try it out so i think i really highly recommend with any students out there if they still don't know what they want to do it's just give a small try like three months project something to see if you're you really like it before just you know jumping into it after graduation so i did a couple of internship at merck and also ticket oncology company and i was really working with amazing team like really amazing scientists or really doing a cutting edge science in the, this big pharma but i just didn't like i just really like the you know the at the time, I really liked the academic passion, and I was just like, oh, industry is not fast-paced. Or, like, I felt like in academic, we do so much more new things and more industry. They were just adopting what's already published in academic science. So it wasn't just more about innovating at the time. So that was something that I just didn't like as much. I was like, I'm not sure if industry passed for me. And I think that was the kind of in my middle of the PhD. I just really didn't know what I want to do. Um, and I actually just started doing some management consulting projects and because lots of my friends back in school, they wanted to go to McKinsey. It was very common. It, they come all the time to your career fair. Like they, give us, they do a lot of things to actually recruit you. And I did a, like a couple of projects. I was like, oh, God, no, I do not like that. I love the science. I just really miss the science part. I was like, it's just fun, but I just really am passionate about science. And then I had really close friends back at MIT that they wanted like, uh, they always talk about having a startup. So it was like, I have some of my closest friends. I was like, oh, we want to just do our own company. And then, we, you know, that's, they, they were very excited. They were, and at the time, I really didn't know what it means to have a startup. Like, I didn't even know how to start a startup company. Um, so what I did, actually, I went to the MIT course catalog of the Sloan School of Management. And I looked at the description of all the classes. And there was one class I really liked. It was like, how to turn your idea to a startup company. And I was like, oh, this is really fun. So I signed up for that class. <laughs> and then I had no idea at the time, like, how the startup is. I didn't even know about the loss of available resources to start companies either. So I think that was the first class for me to just learn about, like, a startups and what it is. And at the time, during that class project, I actually pitched idea was, I've been always like interested in like a healthy lifestyle and then how to do disease prevention. So we actually pitched an idea like you know, how to do disease prevention. And we, we were planning to develop this no diabetes app that basically help patients who are like pre-diabetics with changing their lifestyle so they will not become diabetes, diabetic patients. And during the whole class semester, I loved the process. I was like, oh, this is so much fun. I really like the energy. I just like how it's fast-paced is. Um, but one thing was missing, I, I loved science. So that's one of my, like, you know, from early on, I started graduate school. I just really loved my PhD. Um, and I was just thinking at the time, it was like, can I do something with my PhD? Is it possible? Like, I love the startup, but I don't want to develop a diabetes app. Like, I mean, it's cool, but it's, I, just, I just really want to do something that I'm passionate about more. Um, so during the whole process, like turning a science to a PhD, like a PhD project to a company it's it's kind of challenging itself so usually lots of the startups are built because there's a problem and then they, they try to answer this problem with the technology but at the time what I had I had the technology <laughs> that was doing something cool like it was analyzing some data but then I had to try to find a problem 
to solve it with this technology. So what we really study is not from zero to one. So, you know, if you read uh, lots of books from zero to one, we're starting actually from minus one to zero <laughs> and then from zero to one. And that's actually really interesting. I know actually NIH, there are some, there are some programs that actually try to help like, uh, you know, finding like basically commercializing science. Um, so at the time I was, again, I because I got to know more about the MIT system of management who in the class I took, I was very fortunate to take one of those classes with kind of similar format. So I pitched my idea to an MBA class and I was participating in class myself at the same time. And during this whole class process was like, okay, we have this really cool technology. It was different technologies. What's the most pass to add to the commercial, to commercial to technology? And so basically this is a whole, it's a very iterative process. Like you basically, you start from like just brainstorming a whole bunch of ideas. Like we brainstorm from like, you know, oil industry and measuring like, like bacterial or metabolites to like, like a newborn diagnostic to so many, many different things. So like really wide topics and then trying to basically narrow this down and talking with the industry leaders that how this technology create could create value in that field. And also it's not just creation of the value. You want to create the most value with the least amount of spending <laughs> and least amount of cost. Um, so I love that whole process and um, that process basically lead to my company. So actually my company was born from that class project. I couldn't immediately start right after because I still had to graduate and I need to write my thesis. <laughs> so, but it was just the beginning part. And after that, I was just really using that idea that we had at the time to further grow the company. And I think this whole like iterative process of product market fit or actually learning the idea, it's it's continuous throughout actually throughout the whole company because every day the market changes. There's a new technology that comes out. Uh, you know, you work in a disease tomorrow. There's a FDA approved drug, so it's really there's a lot of things could change and being able to adopt those changes and learning. I think that's a really amazing skill set I learned. Um, and I highly recommend for. I think there are right now. Uh, actually, like there's some like um, incubator programs that do help with the PhDs actually to turn the science. I forgot there was a name of actually I think it was an NIH program. They also give them like I think 50k to explore that and actually turn like a scientific idea to a commercialization path. Like a best problem actually to find to solve a um, to solve using a scientific uh, technology. Yeah. Awesome. <clears throat> so. Your startup is a spin-off from MIT. So just to be clear, MIT is a shareholder on your company? Yeah, so we have to have exclusive license from MIT to, because the technology is patented and they, there is a licensing agreement, which also includes some equity at the company. Okay, Um. so when you graduate, you already raised money or you just happen on after your graduation establishing? So give us context um, on that. Yeah, so when I right graduated, I stay at MIT for like a very short postdoc, and the reason was a lot of the visa stuff. <laughs> like, it's it's a little bit harder to. I think there was some like rules was changed that the OPTs were not at the time so easy to have a start be a founder. So I just uh, stayed to basically apply for my green card, and um, I basically left MIT in two thousand seventeen, and I raised money in two thousand eighteen. And how was the progress for, I'm sorry, how was the progress for revivement since 2018? So you are graduate from MIT, you are advocate on that field, kind of like you're a thought leader. Yeah. 
Um, so how was the progress of the company for you so far? It, it's, it's fun in the real world or still challenging? Or... It is very hard. <laughs> to say it's, it's a lot easier when you're still school. <laughs> I feel like when you're like, um, I mean, there's a thing, like when you're still a student and then you try to reach the people in the industry, I feel they're more open to help you out. But usually it, it changes a little bit. I think it's very difficult. So a startup company, it's, it's a very, very difficult process. So, but it's also very rewarding. I mean, I would never learn as much I've learned in the past few years that I started my company, both in scientific, both in learning about the industry, presentation skills, and also, you know, like soft skills. So I would say that the most thing I learned was actually the soft skills. Um, and it's a it's a process. So every time, like, uh, we basically, since we started the company, we've also changed a lot of our focus, our formal offering, um, because it's a whole process that you learn and you adopt. Like something I could publicly disclose is that uh, we started the company working on a disease called NASH. And I think we, we mentioned that it's a liver indication. It's a huge problem um, with no treatment right now. And in the middle of the company, we we was very fortunate. We did a public analysis study uh, with Bristol Myers Squibb or BMS. These are a big pharma company that are very leader in the field of immune oncology. And immune oncology, our own immune system is activated to attack the tumor cells. So at the time, I mean, we were very fortunate that that company realized our technology is really fitted to that problem. So it was kind of very similar to where I started, like you know, finding a problem to solve with the technology. And like since that collaboration, it, we realized there's such a market opportunity and also technology fit. So it's not, of course, there should be a market there, but also there should be a technology fit. So we were able to do this really exciting collaboration with them, and we were realizing this new opportunity for us that, uh, you know, and then that's something that we are also internally following up on that. Um, so this, again, there's a whole, it's ups and downs. It's, it's a tough process. It's market changes. There are things that you cannot control, right? Um, so like last year has been like very brutal. Hopefully I'm more positive about 2024. Uh, their teams could change all the time that impact. Um, but I think it's more about the every entrepreneur out there, it's just all about the journey, like doing your best. And, uh, you know, the success is not really the end output of like if your company is exited, but it's a lot of like what you do, how much value you create, and how much you learn, I think, during the whole process as well. Okay. Um, super interesting. So what is the product that you are, you just a technology or the patent or what's, what's, what's your progress in terms of the product you're going to deliver to, I don't know, yeah, is the business? So we, is a... Yeah, so we do a couple of things. We have a couple of products, more specifically in NASH. So we're finding therapeutics in NASH. And then we're also finding some uh, biomarker of drug response. So these are the things we internally develop. Um, but at the end, we work with pharma companies. And at the end, everything will be licensed to pharma. And one other thing, we do also have a proprietary database asset and a technology that we do that, offer that to the pharma companies for different angles. So we mostly work with pharma. So they basically, either, um, for example, we, we have pre-trained models and we could leverage those pre-trained models and an AI algorithm to find the novel therapeutics. So there, for example, interested in the disease, we help them to find this therapeutic and they follow up or they're interested to figure out what patient would respond to their drugs in clinical trial. And we are able to stratify their patients. So we say, hey, these are these are the most likely to respond to your drugs. So we help them to increase their FDA approval rate. 
Um, so mostly working with PharmaMod, we basically by providing them um, basically our technology, our proprietary algorithms, and also database asset we have. So we provide solutions to them using the proprietary technology. But we also do internal development. We have two programs. One is in Nash, as I mentioned, that we internally develop them ourselves. But our goal is at the end is license them to pharmaceutical companies as well. Shinjan, Fazanjan, questions? Start off clearly, it's like very fluid. But one thing that is always there is pivot. You have to pivot. I want to ask about your pivot. Did you have to pivot? And if so, what was the, what are those pivots that you have to do? Yeah, I, that's yeah, that's so true. So you really need to adapt with the market. So you at the beginning, actually, that was a very very beginning. When I started the company, we wanted to do drug repurposing. So that was the things I hold is this drug that failed in clinical efficacy for this disease now. So there's so much clinical data on it. Can we get this drug and repurpose it for a new indication? Um, so that was like, I'm not sure if you call it as a pivot, but that was our initial idea that we wanted to do that. And then soon after I was, you know, trying to pitch the pharma companies about that. And then I was like, well, no, we don't want to do that. There was so much issues that we learned. It was like, it was an initial idea generation. And then they were saying, oh, there's a patent issues. If a drug is shelved, don't want to touch it. There was a lot of things we realized about that past. And then while we were pitching it, they were saying, oh, this technology is really good for doing this, or this technology is really good for doing that. So for us, it wasn't like a specific pivot, but it's really important to learn from your customers and the market and get the feedback to see where you could actually put more money to grow, right? So it's more like what's the market is today, what's the market is tomorrow, and then this is this is going to be the most value I'm going to create. So maybe it's just use more money to do it, and raise money to do that more. But it's I think it's the most important thing is to be close to your clients and customers and just trying to learn from the industry so and get feedback because it's changed all the time right like it's yeah new technologies come like everything will yeah will will change a lot thank you so Leila John I'm kind of curious let, let's talk about the industry that you are work on I think um so you you are a big advocate about the application of the AI in the pharma and you have speeches that the pharma industry is not adaptable about technology now we are in the moment that gen AI everyone talk about it so what's your perspective about the industry basically computational biology pharma delivery whatever what, what's the specific sector and what was the development and progress that we had on gen AI and AI so what was the application on that? What going to see exactly as a customer mm-hmm. or a commercial this year in terms of the trend? Like, do we have design the drug based on the AI, based on a specific patient for the disease? What's what's the main thing that's going to happen? No, that's a great question. I feel like pharma maybe was one of the late adopters of AI, but I feel like AI is so big right now. So definitely every pharmaceutical company, they do have some focus on that. So um, why is one- that? So why is that? There's a lot of times, like, you know, they realize you do need to use it. There is, they don't want to leave behind either, right? But there is also value added. So more and more startups are, there are many startups right now that use artificial intelligence, right? So they push out, they hear all those things that they are actually value added. But I also have to say, you know, pharma still, uh, you know, there is still like not completely open to any type of AI, which kind of understandable, like, AI is a technology, it's a tool, but still it's not going to be the answer to everything. 
So there is this new tool that they want to use it, and but it's still, you know, it requires experimentation, still needs to do biology. So I think I don't think anytime soon we'll replace biology completely. I think we'll just augment biology and enhance the design of the experimentations and the design of the study, then completely replacing that. So you could automate the process and make it a lot faster and more efficient than completely replacing that. Um, but also one other thing is like the type of the AI that they lay, I feel like throughout this my conversation with Pharma, they, they, I think Pharma don't like really black box models. Like they wanna know why something is relevant. So even for us, like we find some model and the features from these algorithms, oh, this is, you know, they, they have the highest attention. Like this is like the most predictable model, right? But for us, actually, we need to translate back to the biology. Like, why is the case? And like this translation of the data to the biology, I think that adds a lot more value to being able to pharma adopt it. I was like, okay, we understand that those features are, you know, fine because of these pre-trained models, and that's what it came, right? Uh, but at the end of it, why those features are so important in that biology? So I think being able to translate that back to the, uh, you know, why this is the case, I think would really help with the adaptation of the AI, um, specifically in the in the biological setting. Um, and I do see like one other thing would be also FDA, right? I think the regulatory process matter too. So pharma is not gonna do anything that FDA won't gonna accept it at the end of it, right? So there are actually AI startups right now that they working with FDA and they got FDA endorsement that, hey, we could use this AI tool as like these markers of to stratify patients. So I think FDA also being more open to some of the tools that are AI-based to design the clinical trial that will add a lot more to the field because, you know, if the clinical trials are extremely expensive and, you know, at the end of it, if you could save some money or like reduce the number of patients needed or improve the outcome, I think it will add a lot of value. But again, FDA also should be on board to make sure those tools are, you know, approved by the regulatory process. Because at the end, if, if FDA want to agree how you stratify your patient using AI, it doesn't matter, right? Like, no one wants it. Um, so I think that there has been some endorsement from FDA that from some some of the startup companies working in the field, I think that's that's helpful. Um, but I think at the end of it, AI could help a lot with the drug discovery process. So a lot of the chemistry stuff right now is done with AI. It's been one of the first uh, I think application of the AI in biology was drug design. And I think most of the companies right now, they have some sort of AI-based drug, drug design. And I think those are the areas that's very early adopted. Lots of companies are using that. Um, like mRNA technologies, lots of those things has been based in AI and it's been really adopted. So I think lots of, and we've seen that uh, uh, the progress uh, so far in the field. So, I mean, at the end of it, biology would never go away, but I think like getting to that biological experimentation faster or something uh, and cheaper with AI would add a lot of value. Guys, you have a question? I don't want to ask all the questions. Yeah, no, I, I do have two questions, Leila. The first one you did mention inter interpretability and how important it is in your field. And you also mentioned neural networks and uh, deep learning and that you're leveraging mm -hmm. it. How do you deal with the, on, on inter, uh, interpretability of the latent space of uh, variables and uh, how do you uh, make it yeah. interpretable basically? 
that's actually really hard. So that's one of the things actually we are doing in my team. Um, so we because we we do a lot of network modeling. So one of the work we are doing, we connect those things again. Like you could have a network as an input model, like a biological network, and then how those molecules are connected through the. So you could have another layer that's like a biological. I mean that's the that's the area of research. So it's like a okay. open okay. area of research. Um, but like in, you know there you could have actually a network of biology and biological pathways and an additional layer to your input, and you could see how they're connected. Um, to to those network or uh, yeah, it's a very open area of research. Okay. I, I don't yeah, for us yeah, we absolutely. do a lot of network modeling, so that's what okay. um, we address that, but. I'm sure there is people doing the field, like how those molecules are connected to biological mechanisms too. No, that makes sense. Uh, I'm sure that will be a whole different uh, podcast <laughs> on its own <laughs> to yeah, discuss yeah, that. Sure. Um, another question I had was around, um, how do you see big corporations like um, either in pharma, like Genentech and such, yeah. or in AI, like Google, Google um, released AlphaFold yeah. last year for, uh, yeah. for, um, uh, yeah. Uh, for, uh, yeah, to to form the amino acid um, um, sequence. Yeah. How do you see like startups like yours in this space um, competing with these large pharma companies that have huge amounts of resources and data or like AI companies that have like a lot of expertise on the AI side? How do you see yourself fitting the picture alongside those? say we're competing with them so i would say they are like potential collaborator or you know potential people who could complement them so i know for example genentech had uh, you know they have a new head that she's very big fan of ai and they're very focusing on that and they do actually a bunch of collaboration with ai companies so i think i wouldn't call i would not consider them as a competition so i think there are people who could actually help you but of course, like as a startup, you need to make yourself unique in something, right? Like I wouldn't go develop a new, you know, GPT GPT model for natural language processing, right? But maybe using that GPT model in something that hasn't been done before, then you are going to be unique in that, right? So I think as a startup, it's building up on your like proprietary, you know, uniqueness and developing that's going to be key. Um, but I, I don't think I was I would not be worried about those big AI companies or a big corporation or big pharma. I would consider them as a potential collaborator and customer. And they're actually become more and more open to doing AI collaboration. But I think as a startup, the challenge is to differentiate yourself. Not just actually from those big companies, from a ton of other startups out there. There are so many AI startups right now. There are hundreds of AI companies uh, in biospaces only, right? So and I talk with the VCs, everyone's like, there's so much AI. Like, I don't remember, like, why you are different from the rest of the people, right? So I think that's so important mm -hmm. to, to show that, not just for those big tech companies, but also just be able to raise money compared to the competition out there, yeah. And one last question, Arnola, before we move on. Uh, so Lila, with uh, the changing landscape of AI, your company is focused on the on biologies, uh, like application of AI and data in biology. Yeah. And you mentioned you have uh, collected your own proprietary data, you're cleaning like public data, leveraging that, uh, but also leveraging AI. With this changing landscape, um, what's your vision? Or do you see your company uh, focusing more on the AI side and less of like collecting data and like leveraging open data? 
or still like um, having your focus on collecting data? How how do you see? How's your what's your vision basically? No, I think one of the things moving forward, we do want to collect our own data sets and have more proprietary patient cohorts available. Because we've already like combined so many of the public data sets available. So adding proprietary data sets is going to be really valuable. So that's one of the things that we're actually moving forward and we plan to do. I mean, proprietary data sets is always, you know, a lot more valuable because you know exactly so much details about every patient you know, how the data was collected. So it's cleaner data. But I think public data is really good for developing like pre-trained models, but again, fine-tuning it, I think, or validating, I think, proprietary data set. It's definitely that's something we consider to do. Of course, there are really big like data that become more available, like UK Biobank, they, you know, this huge amount of data is generated for, um, I don't remember the exact number of patients, but there are many patients, you know, I think, you know, half a million patients, they, they have so much data and they're open that like you could collaborate with them. So you could actually write a research proposal to have access to UK Biobank data sets. So I, I think maybe in the future, hopefully we will see more of those data sets are collected from larger scale population level because those data sets are extremely expensive to collect, but they are being collected using, I think, more like, you know, governments of different, you know, countries and the healthcare system there. So having, I think, have, seeing more of those data also being available, that's going to be interesting for everyone and using that data sets too. So is it uh, accurate to say that instead of going with the flow uh, and like just focusing on AI and generative AI, you're, uh, you're keeping your unique value in having your own property. I mean, your company is focusing on having its own property data. Yeah, definitely. Say. For us, what makes us unique at least, or we consider is the type of data we are analyzing. So we are very focused on mass spectrometry data analysis. So that's our unique capacity um, because there's so many different data modalities out there. So we're very unique in that because because uh, I think the, there are so many challenges existing in that data set um, that we've been really able to solve. So that's our uniqueness in the type of data we are understanding and also the proprietary data is just that we had. But the algorithm is always growing. Like we've, we had our own algorithm. Like my PhD was patented and it was a whole process. Not only, not the algorithm was not patented, but the process of turning the data to INSA was patented. But now I mean, we are using GPT models. We, we are doing every, like the science of data science grows so much faster than you could do internally. So we definitely use a lot of algorithms that are available and being developed and we just adopt them to that data type that you're analyzing. It. Anything, Shinja? Good. Uh, so it may be controversial, but I want to ask this, you know, uh, what's your point of view toward regulation and the regulatory body, which is FDA out there, uh, you know, I want to know if this, uh, if this regulation, if this reg uh, FDA and all the reg regulatory bodies that we have uh, out there are holding the innovation back in your field, because I know that it's very like conservative and normally it's very yeah. slow. So do you ever wish that, okay, FDA never be out there and then just you will be free to do whatever you want to do? I think, um, yeah, it's a controversial. Be I honest. Think, I think FDA... <laughs> No, I think FDA is there for a reason. So, you know, I just have to say, I think at the end of it, like, you know, FDA is there because they want to have patient safety. And 
it's it's just you know it's um it's a tough process like if you remove fda i think we're going to see a lot more issues so i think at the end of innovation should be regulated i I think like maybe FDA is a bit maybe it's slower, like maybe if they will move faster, <laughs> that would be a lot better. I think that will help with the you know advancement of the new methods. But at the end of it, I think if you remove FDA, oh, we will not really be able because the new drug could come to the market, could have severe side effects, it could, you know, really not um improve patient outcomes. So I think it's still really important to evaluate all that. So I think we, we, I don't think we could get rid of. I think regulation should be there. Maybe if they were faster, it would be better. Or, um, but yeah. So from point of view of innovation, I understand for the safety, definitely we need regulation. But how about the innovation? Yeah. Okay, uh, maybe we need a new regulatory body for the innovation because FDA is very focused on safety. How about innovation? I mean, at the end of it, you need to have a product of innovation, right? So innovation would lead to something, right? It is improved therapeutics or improved diagnostic or improved delivery, right? So it's going to be the end product of the regulation. I mean, the innovation, um, you know, would lead to, uh, uh, you know, it's it needs to be proved, basically, based on both safety and also efficacy, like if it's helping or not. Um, I mean, there are other things that maybe it's not completely regulated by FDA, but like, but again, it's I think it's a very I don't know exactly the reason, but I think like access to patient data. So this is this is a thing like again like loss of times the patient privacy, or like you know if you have every access to everything, you could literally identify that people right, and there's a lot of things could happen like maybe like if. You know the future employees they will get access to the data system not hire these people because of that some chronic some disease condition they have right so there's a lot of things it's very tough or like this like the privacy of the people so i think at the end of it we want to innovate fast but i think we also have to be careful like we don't want to really compromise patient privacy you know we still don't know i think ai is very beginning like honestly the algorithm gets better you could predict everyone's identity <laughs> using some of the data that you have from them. And right now everyone is, all the data is de-identified, but it's not that hard. Like if you have more data from someone, you could definitely predict who they are. And I think it could be very scary if all this data available to everyone, right? So I, I don't know. I feel like we should still be cautious about yeah, some of those regulated process. Seems you are in the process of getting approved from FDA, so you don't say anything bad about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, are so good, super nice guys. Um, so just change the gear, Leila John. Um, and I know I told you just one hour, so sorry for that. But you're gonna wrap up very soon. You are working on a very uh, opportunistic field. So what the quality of beside money you look in the venture capital firm when you want to raise money, like the network current portfolio, experience on the field. Could you, and do you have any experience talk to any kind of the Persian community-based VC firms kind of thing or now or talk about that? Oh, have I have definitely, um, very, I think Persian is amazing. I have Persian advisors and I have Persian angel investors too. So that's definitely uh, not the specific VC firms, but I have Persian, um, you know, invest angel investors as well. So no, I think the Persian company is amazing. I've really been fortunate to connect with some of the amazing people here, and they just connect you and just get advice. So I've been very fortunate about uh, all of that. Like um, 
And uh, yeah, I think uh, what we are looking for a VC, it's again, like the most important is the share vision. Like, so for us, do they, you know, work in this field? So like their VCs, they have different theses and focus, right? So for us, not every VC out there will invest in a company because they want to be in a specifically focused in biotech, AI, and this application, right? So one is believing in that that angle that there is value here. That will be the first thing. Um, I think shared vision is very important. Like you know, how fast that money wanted to get their VC want to get their money back? Are they because you know VCs they they also have to raise their own money, right? So and they have the funds, and then how fast they want to return? They could sometimes they really push you. Like they could push the the founders to like get a deal or do something that you don't want because of the short term return for them. And like a you know long term, uh, pass of those basically for your company. So I think shared vision. I think that's really important. I would recommend like um you know especially if people want to sit on the board like having calls with the portfolio companies. So of course portfolio company matter a lot. That's the first thing I look. I was like, what are the other companies those people invested previously? Uh, and like usually I I actually give calls that people reach out to me. So my investors that they they doing. Because um, at the end, it matters a lot. Like, if people really helpful, like, I had, like, investors who's been, like, I probably couldn't do it without them, without their support and being there. Um, so really important to have good investors, not just, to, not just to bring the money, but just really believing in you. Because there are some VCs out there, like, you know, like, when I started, everyone's saying, well, you're just a PhD, you don't know anything. Like, there are VCs, they don't like a PhD CEO. They do not like they want to say, oh, let's just get the science and bring a real CEO, <laughs> right? So if you if the VC already have this mindset, they're not gonna support you. If anything, this is a it's a journey. It's up and down, right? Like there are times things are not good, and it's like, oh, you're not good. Like they're not gonna back you up to support you, try to replace you, or they just like you know take their support out of the company. Um, so I think looking at what type of you know do they really believe in the female founders, right? Do they really believe in like uh, you know, first-time founders, CEOs that coming just from academic. So I think those things matter a lot. And I think like with looking a little bit on the market, like the portfolio companies they invested and just doing a bit of a, like a reference call uh, with some of their portfolio companies that uh, are usually helpful to to figure out what are the right VCs are. And definitely, of course, the network of the VC matter. Like if, you know, if they... They could give you a call and then basically if you want to do fundraising, they're so well connected with one email. They could introduce it literally to everyone, uh, you know. Uh, so that, that definitely is something that's very valuable, right, as well. Um, one other thing I would say is not just the firm, but the partner itself also matter. Because at the end of it, big firms, you're going to work with one partner in that firm. That person is going to sit on your board. So specifically focusing on that person itself also it's also important than just the firm itself too. Yeah. Super interesting. Um, and you are in the active raising series A. We are say. starting soon, yes, but not yet, but starting soon, yes. So other question, just want to ask last question and wrap up from here. Um, so honestly, you've been in you had an interesting, remarkable journey. <laughs> so you came from Iran, go to the MIT. Um, publish a paper on nature, did the TED talk and start a company based on that. And, you know, when, when I see it from outside, I see like brave moves uh, and also targeted specific uh, moves that, you know, come from the mindset or decision-making process. Um, if you want to share 
what's your decision-making process for these moves or behind that? What's your thought? I mean, yeah, looking backward, I mean, there's a lot of things I could have done differently too. And like maybe my career path would be different. Um, so one of the things I usually like to do is just getting feedback from people. So having good mentors around me that maybe they've been one step ahead of me uh, or two steps ahead of me and getting their advice. Um, and of course, you will always hear different advice from people, but at the end, you know, you are the person who makes the decision. So I love to have mentors. So I've been very fortunate to surround with really good mentors and also good peer, like having really good friends around you who are doing really amazing work and just talking with them. So I think that's really shaped the path of like what what to move forward. Um, and one other thing is just being proactive. So sometimes I like to, so lots of the things I did, it's, it wasn't just going like zero, like diving deep into something. I just really like explored it a little bit. Maybe it just did some small thing and said, I do, is it something I like? Is it something I don't like? So, uh, and I think just being a, like being proactive in some of the things and then making decision toward that. So a lot of the major decision I made, it's it wasn't like so simple. Oh, I want to do this and that's it. It was like learning about this. Okay, this is something I want. And now what the next step is. And just gradually going toward this process and learning from that. Yeah. Awesome. Anything else, guys? Oh, this was great, Leila. Thank you so Thank much. You so uh, much. Yeah, I've yeah. known you for so, so many years, I, I think for seven, eight years now, but I have never heard about like your uh, your journey in such details and I really oh, enjoyed thank it. You. Thanks Thank for sharing so it. Thanks for having me, of course. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the honor to be here. Thank you. Yeah, that's so our much. honor. We have one like picture we want to take, so just look at the camera. Okay, so yeah. Thank you guys. Thanks for having Thank me. You. It was very nice. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. Have everyone. Have a great Sunday. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.